Well, welcome to Crossroads Live today. My name is Matt Manning, and I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And I'm so glad that you're joining us, wherever you might be joining us from. If you're at a place where you can type in the chat box, I would love to know where you're at and uh, where you're joining us from. If you're new with us, man, welcome to Crossroads Church. We're so grateful uh, that you're joining with us today in this time of worship. And if you're a regular here at Crossroads, you might be thinking, oh no, I missed the music. Like, Matt's already preaching, but, but don't worry. Just like James just said, we're switching some things around. And so we're going to do the sermon, then we're going to go into a time of communion, and then we're going to respond with our singing today. And so today we begin uh, with the sermon. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 6. It's where we're going to be today. And if you are new with us, one of the things that is a regular rhythm here at Crossroads Church is that oftentimes what we do is we go back and forth from like topical message series where we're looking at practical living type of stuff and what the Bible has to say about it. And then we take time to look at a book of the Bible and the teachings through that book. And so in that rhythm, we kind of go back and forth. And so for a while now, we've actually been, the book that we've been in for a while is the book of Luke, one of the gospel accounts or one of the four accounts of Jesus's life. And so uh, we're jumping back in that today, looking at the life of Jesus. Now, if you, um, when it comes to the life of Jesus, what I've found to be certainly true is that most people know like Bible stories about Jesus, but very few of us, if like we were pressed, actually know the story of Jesus. In fact, probably for most of us, whether you're a believer or not, you could probably recount some of the details around Jesus's birth or maybe even around the cross and his death. And maybe a few of you would even be able to, to speak about the resurrection and, and all that has to do with the resurrection. Probably a few of you could speak to some of the miracles that happened in Jesus's life. But, but if I was to hard press you and, and ask you, what made Jesus special? What would you say? How would you answer that question? I mean, what was it that, that people would just flock to Jesus? What was it that thousands upon thousands of people would travel up to 100 miles to come hear him speak? What was it that, that in the scriptures, in the gospel, were stories included of him healing 5,000 or feeding 5,000, healing a little girl, or even calming a storm? What was it to truly know Jesus? I think that's an important question for us. Whether you've been a believer for a long time or this is your first time at church or, or you're somewhere in the middle, that's why we're here, isn't it? I mean, every single one of us are here and we showed up today, not simply to hear me speak like this is some kind of TED Talk or something, but, but really that there was something deep down inside that you wanted to see, that, that you want to see Jesus, that you want to know if he's really God, if, if he really cares for you and loves you the way that the Bible speaks about, that, that if he's really worth following and giving your life to. And again, whether you've been a Christian for decades or whether this is your first time at church or someone in, somewhere in the middle, there's no better way to discover that than to look at the life of Jesus, looking at who he is, what he was about, what he, why he came into this earth. And so if you've been a part of this series and in the past, then you know that when it comes to the gospel of Luke, that one of Luke's real questions in investigating the life of Jesus is why did Jesus come? Like what was his mission? What was his purpose? Why did he come into this world? And the good news for us is that as we've peered into this book, into the life of Jesus, is that we don't actually have to wonder why Jesus came into this world that he actually just gives it to us, that he, that he tells us that the reason that he came into this world was to proclaim the good news to the poor. Now, when Jesus starts his ministry, he's like 30 years old. 
and he comes out of what we call this wilderness experience, and he kind of bursts on the scene as this famous rabbi. And he goes around for about six months or so in the northern part of Israel, this place called Galilee. And he does these wonders, and he's teaching in these synagogues. And, and as he teaches, people look at him and see him, and it's like he's saying things that they had never heard before. And all of a sudden, there's this, this huge buzz about this, this rabbi, Jesus. And eventually, after about six months, Jesus makes it to his hometown, his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes into the temple that he grew up in, that he would have heard hundreds of sermons in himself. And he goes into the temple that day, and, and the temple is full, waiting for people. The, the synagogue is full, waiting for, for Jesus to speak to the people. And Jesus sits down in the, in the synagogue, and he pulls out the Isaiah scroll, like one of the big dog prophets of the people of Israel. And he reads these words from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, that, that he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like in this moment, Jesus speaks these words over the people, and all of a sudden they realize what Jesus is all about, what Jesus has come to do. And for the next couple of years, Jesus goes on this tour of Israel, going to synagogue after synagogue, teaching, going to city and city and town after city and town, doing miracles and performing these, these miraculous things. And as he goes from town to town for the next three years, what he does is he shows what it looks like to proclaim the gospel to the poor. Now, as Jesus walks into these cities, we, we have to remember that he wasn't like some big city kid. No, he was from the small rural town of Nazareth. And he's not a man who, who comes from affluence, but a man who comes from poverty. His, his dad was a simple carpenter. That he grew up not as one of the elites, but very much as a peasant. Humble, poor, simple circumstances. And about age 30, like I said, he becomes this incredible rabbi. And he has this ability to, to speak to the marginalized, to the down and out, to the poor, in ways that related to them. And all of a sudden, people from, from everywhere, people from Israel, all around Israel, begin to become curious of, of Jesus' teachings. They begin to, to line up to, to see what he has to say. They're, they're drawn to his magnetic personality, his ability to perform miracles, his ability to cast out demons. And by the time we get to Luke chapter 6, by the time we get to Luke chapter 6, Luke lets us in on one of Jesus' greatest teachings. We call it the Sermon on the Plains. Now, for some of you who maybe know your Bibles really well, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa Matt, you, you messed that up. It's actually the Sermon on the Mount. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5. Luke chapter 6, the author Luke calls it actually the Sermon on the Plains. And scholars go back and forth and they debate whether it's the same teaching or different teachings. And wherever you stand on that, the point of the matter is, is that ultimately that these are Jesus' go-to teachings. Like, these are the big teachings that Jesus spoke, often and in many cities, that these were the teachings that Jesus went to. And as we open up these scriptures and see, like, these go-to teachings of Jesus, that what we have to realize is that, is that these teachings are really Jesus' manifesto for what it means to be fully human in the kingdom of God. And specifically today, as we look at the section called the Beatitudes, which is just kind of the Latin word for blessings, that when it comes to the Beatitudes, really what the Beatitudes give to us is the key 
of a life of peace that every single one of us ultimately desire. So we're just going to walk through this today. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 17, and here's how Luke records it. He says, and he, that's Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place. In the Greek, that's plains. With a great uh, uh, crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them. And so here's the scene being set for us, that, that Jesus ends up in this place, and a multitude, probably thousands of people show up. As far as Tyre and Sidon, which was up in Lebanon, people traveled to come hear Jesus speak. And as Jesus is going through the crowd speaking to people, he's healing them, and some are, are just reaching out and touching him, and as, as they touch him, power leaves him, and it actually heals them. He's casting out demons, like, like the miraculous is happening all around Jesus. Eventually, he makes it to the front, and he begins this sermon, and here's the way that Luke records it for us. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account for the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you, you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, for those of us who, who've read this a hundred times or maybe even a thousand times, we lose sight of this. But the way that Jesus starts this sermon is provocative. It's kind of strange and it's odd. It's odd. He begins with a list of blessings and warnings. He doesn't like intro this. He doesn't like help people all come together. He just fires away with blessings and warnings. And the way that he begins the, the sermon is actually with this phrase, blessed are you. Blessed are you, blessed are you. Four times he says, blessed are you. And when we see that word blessed, it's really the Greek word makarios, makarios. Now, makarios is an interesting word. It, it wasn't like a Bible word. It wasn't a religious word. Makarios was an everyday, commonly used word. And it was oftentimes, like, like when it was used, it was used in Jewish literature, it was used in pagan literature, that it was just common language makarios. Now, oftentimes when we read the New Testament, we see the word blessed, in the New Testament, that's actually a different Greek word than the one that's being used here. Now, when it comes to makarios, makarios is, is a little bit difficult word for us to translate in the English because there's not like a one-to-one -one translation here. And so if you're reading your scriptures, if you're reading your Bible, you'll probably see the word translated as blessed or happy or fortunate. And while those are all really good translations, they're, just, they're missing it just a little bit. Because in the common Greek language, makarios was actually used as like a salutation. It was used as, as a hello and as a goodbye. And really, when it comes to kind of our understanding, that probably the better word to be used is congratulations. 
that it would be oftentimes used like in terms of when something good happened to you, like maybe you had a baby or maybe it was your birthday or maybe you just got back from Disney World. Like somebody would come up to you and they would say, Makarios, like congratulations, like favor is upon you, like fate has smiled upon you, Makarios. And so Jesus starts his sermon with using this word four times, Makarios, 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 Makarios. And the list that follows, when he says congratulations, the list that follows is a bit of a head-scratcher, isn't it? Because he says congratulations, blessed are you who are poor, hungry, mourning, and hated. Now, if you're new to Jesus, you're probably thinking, Jesus, like, like you're a really cool dude. But when it came to this moment, you must have been like baking in the sun too long. Because in what world, in what universe is this like, like things worth congratulating? Where, where would you congratulate people on this? And yet when it comes to the Beatitudes, the, the blessings and the woes that we find here and in Matthew chapter 5, we realize that this is one of the most important teachings that Jesus ever gave. That at the very beginning of his, of his sermon that was like paramount, like it was number one, his biggest sermon, his, his most used teachings, he begins, to, he begins the sermon with these blessings. It was obviously first priority for Jesus. And I would say humbly, I, I really mean this, humbly, that I believe that sadly it's also one of the mis, most misunderstood teachings that Jesus ever taught. And so what I want to do, just to kind of framework where we're going today, is actually to speak a little bit to what this list is not, before we get to what the Beatitudes are. And so first and foremost, I want you to know that the Beatitudes are not a list of virtues. The Beatitudes are not a list of virtues. That typically when this passage is taught, it's taught as virtues, or, or these are good things to aspire to. And oftentimes, when this is taught, we, we tend to, like, spiritualize what's going on here. And so we'll say, like, the poor are those who are dependent upon God. And the hungry are, are those who hunger for God right now, who want more and more of God. For those who are mourning, those are the ones who are mourning over sin. And maybe, maybe that's the right way to understand this. But it's not what Jesus says. It's not what he says. Jesus simply says here, that blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. And when it comes to those two words, poor and hungry in the Greek, when Jesus is talking about the poor, he's talking about the down and out, those who are on the fringe of society, those who don't have anything to offer the society in which they live in. When he's talking about the hungry, that, that Greek word means on the verge of starvation. Like if you don't eat your next meal, there won't be another meal. That Jesus says, blessed are those people. And the question that, that comes to us then is this, is, is this poverty a good or a bad thing? Now, this isn't a trick question. The answer is that it's bad. Poverty is a bad thing. That as we pick up the scriptures and, and read through the entirety of the Bible, one of the things that, that we find is one of the major themes of scripture is that of human flourishing. That God wants to see all of humankind flourish in this world. Poverty is not good. Over the years, I've, I've had the chance to experience and see poverty at this level. 
that one of the ministries that we have here at Crossroads is called Engage, and it's our work over in Lebanon, largely with the Syrian refugees that we've been working in the Syrian refugee crisis for the last couple of years. And if you don't know much about the Syrian refugee crisis, just know that it's one of the greatest displacements of humanity since World War II. And the poverty that's come on the Syrians is, is nothing short of awful, of disastrous. Just to give you an idea, before the Syrian refugee crisis happened, before the war broke out and all of that stuff started to happen a decade ago or so, that Syria was on the verge of becoming a first world country that most people there made somewhere between $35,000 and $50,000 a year. Now in Beirut, most of the Syrians make somewhere around $15 a week, which is about enough money to buy a carton of eggs in Beirut. The poverty there is, is awful. The first time that I visited Lebanon, I went there with seven people from Crossroads, and, and we went there to work alongside our partners and just to see what was going on and to minister to people. And when we arrived there, the first week that we were there, we actually lived in the middle of the Syrian refugees, right in, this, in the center of it all, that we were in the middle of a five-square-mile area where about 75,000 Syrian refugees lived. And every day we experienced the poverty, and we saw the effects, and, and we ministered with them, and we we worked alongside them, and we saw their great joys and, and their deep, deep grief. About a week into that trip, we met with a couple of people who, who, wanted, who were well-meaning people and, and just wanted to treat us. And so they decided that they would take us to this beautiful restaurant. And so one evening, we drove up the mountains there in Lebanon to kind of the top of the foothills, if you will, to this beautiful restaurant. It had this open, open scenario where you looked down into the valley and you could see the beauty of Beirut and the Mediterranean Sea, and we were there as the sun was setting over the sea. And we were eating at this restaurant, and there was about 20 or 25 of us there at this dinner party, and it was a three-course meal. And after living in, in that depth of poverty for a week, we were sitting at this meal, and the first course comes out, and so much food comes out that it doesn't fit all on the table. Like, they're piling plates because there's so much food in front of us. And then they take away that course, and they bring out the main course. Again, so much food that the plates are, are piled on top of each other. And then the same with desserts. And as we sat there in that restaurant that night, I watched each one of my team members with tears in their eyes excuse themselves from the table to go to the bathroom to recollect themselves. It was like that scene in The Hunger Games when, when uh, Katniss from District 12, impoverished and poor, on the verge of starvation, goes to the Capitol. And she's there at that party with PETA, and, and they're in there with the, all the elites of society. And it's this huge party, and there's food everywhere, and the elites are, are eating so much that they're getting so full that they take a pill to throw up so they can eat more. That's what it was like. We lived that. Poverty is terrible. Same with those who mourn. Jesus doesn't say here those who, who weep over sin. He just simply says those who are sad, those who are mourning right now. Is anybody out there mourning? Has a dream of yours died, a marriage failed, a death of a loved one, a miscarriage, a wayward child, a loss of a job? Jesus says, blessed are you. Makarios are you who mourn. I don't think that he's saying these are good things. 
Same when it comes to, to those who are hated. I, I don't think him be saying that, that you're hated is a, is a good thing, nor do I think when it comes to the warnings that he gives that those are all bad things. I don't think what he's saying that these, are, that these are virtues that we're to aspire to, nor do I think, this is the second thing, that the Beatitudes are a list of commands. See, if you read this list as, as something that we aspire to, then the next thing that it naturally becomes is a list of commands that we're to live to. However, just a simple reading shows that, that these aren't commands. These are blessings and these are warnings. That's what they are. They're not commands. And if they were commands, we would have to take these seriously in such a way that, that when it comes to don't laugh, how do you square that with the other commands of Scripture? What does it look like when we're told to rejoice continually? How do you rejoice without laughter and without joy in your life? How do you, how do, you do that? And so from a concluding standpoint of that, you can't say they're virtues. You can't say they're commands. So the question then becomes, well, what are they? What is Jesus doing with these? Well, what I believe that Jesus is doing is showing us the gospel. He's explaining the gospel to us that the Beatitudes are the gospel of Jesus. See, in the early church, when it comes to the gospels, the gospel was really the, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death, ultimately the resurrection, his coming again, and setting up his rule and reign in this world in order to rescue those who could not rescue themselves by getting in right relationship with God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And so when it comes to the teachings, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is coming to those who are least likely to see it, to get it, to receive it. That is coming to those who, who we would not think of, the poor, the hungry, the sad, and the hated. Jesus says these are the people that are blessed, that these are the people wrapped up because they showed up, and as a result of that, now they're a part of the kingdom of God. And the opposite is also true. That Jesus looks out and, and he throws out these warnings. And he says, if you think that you're a shoe-in for the kingdom because of what you possess in this world, that you are sadly mistaken. And what Jesus does is he turns the way that we think totally upside down. That he, he totally takes the opposite view of how we normally operate. See, if we turn these into, into virtues... And then what becomes of this is really a set of commands that we have to work towards in order to ultimately receive the blessings that God has for us. And Jesus comes on the scene and goes, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. That your salvation, your good news, your congratulations is you're a hot mess. Welcome to the kingdom of God. There's a seat for you here. The good news, the gospel, is that you're a train wreck in your life. Welcome to the kingdom of God. There's a seat here for you. That you're poor, you're hungry, you're sad, you're hated, good news. Welcome to the kingdom. There's a seat for you here. In other words, you don't have to have your entire life together in order to come into my kingdom, Jesus says. That you come into my kingdom not by virtue of who you are, but by faith through grace. Now, come on. If you're a church person, we've heard this a thousand times, haven't we? I mean, we've read this passage a thousand times in our life, and it is so very easy for us to become apathetic to what's being said here. 
But we can't become apathetic to this because this is huge. That it's out of these blessings, out of this place, out of these beatitudes, out of the you're welcome here, out of the you didn't do anything to earn this other than show up. Out of that place then flows the Sermon on the Plains of how we are to ultimately live, what it looks like to be truly human. And Jesus says, first things first, first things first. Now that you have the blessing, now here's what it looks like to live. Now that you understand who you are, your identity in me, you are blessed, now here's what it looks like to live. And ultimately, when we get to that place, having blessing for today, hope for tomorrow, that's where we find peace in our lives. And so the question that comes up is, is how do we embrace this teaching? How do we live this out in our lives? If we can't earn it, if it's not a set of virtues that we work for, if it's not a set of commands that we do, how do we simply embrace the blessings and the warnings in our life? How does it apply to our lives? Well, I want to start off with first addressing the warnings, the woes that Jesus speaks to. And I want to say that if you find yourself in a season where where life is good for you, where you're living the good life, you have money in your pocket, there's food on your table, right? There's, There's satisfaction in your life where people think well of you then my encouragement to you would to give praise to God, to, to fall to your knees and give thanksgiving to God, that those are good gifts given to you. And the Bible teaches us that, that every good gift that we have ultimately comes from the giver of good gifts. It comes from God. And so when God gives us these, these good gifts, then we give thanks to him. That this, this, isn't a, this isn't a guilt trip. That's not what's going on here. That something very interesting has happened in our culture, hasn't it? That if you're living a life that's pretty good, if you're living the good life, then our culture says that there should be shame in that. That there should be shame in that. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. That's not what Jesus is saying. If you're living a good life, then gratitude should fill your life. But what Jesus is warning about here with the woes is not that they're bad. Wealth, satisfaction, joy, people thinking well of you. This, this is human flourishing. God desires this for every one of us in this world. And Jesus' warning to us is the thing that we all face when life starts going good. I mean, isn't this true that when life starts going good, immediately we begin to think, look how great I am. Look how awesome I am. Look what I've done. Look what I've been able to achieve in my life. Like like when things are going good, it's like, look at me. Look at me. And Jesus says in that moment, when your mind begins to shift from the giver of good gifts to praising the gifts, then you're in a place that's dangerous. And soon our peace is not what Jesus has brought to us through the blessing of good news, but in how much is in my bank account, how much people really like me. And Jesus looks at you and me and he says, don't let that happen. Don't go down that road. When life is good, it should drive you to your knees in thankfulness. It was Paul in Romans chapter 1 who said the beginning of sin is when they failed to honor and give thanks to God. When life is good, our response is thanksgiving and praise. So what if your life isn't good? What if you're a mess right now? What if you look at the list and you go, man, I'm, I'm like three out of four. What do I do? How do I embrace the blessing? 
Well, first, the thing that I would tell you is to realize that we live in a culture that says that if you're struggling, if you're not doing well, then God's not blessing you. The reality for us is that America is built on the value of success, that next year will be better than this year. And if we just work hard enough, that'll be true. And that next generation will be better than the generation before us. And we have this belief that, that there is always something better to come, more wealth, more beauty, more better, more better, more better, more better. And in our country, if you're getting ahead, then people look at you and they say, you're the one who's truly blessed. Macarios, Macarios. And yet, sadly, this way of thinking has even entered into our churches, haven't it? I mean, we, we see churches that, that teach, if you follow Jesus, then you'll live your best life now. We see churches operate under the theology of, of if you just work hard enough, then God will help you. God helps those who help themselves. If you're successful, then God's blessing you. Ironically, that's not too different than what the religious elite taught in Jesus' day. And here's the problem. If you buy in to that narrative of the American dream, of the value of success, and it doesn't happen, then what about your story? Then what happens with your story? What happens if you don't become rich or successful, if you don't get into the college that you worked your entire life to get into, if your marriage failed, if you have a wayward son or a wayward daughter, if you don't have a healthy child, all of a sudden your life doesn't fit the American dream? And then what? What then? Well, what then is the kingdom of God. And in a culture that looks at you and says, you're not blessed, God stands up and he says, you are. Blessed are you who are poor, hungry, mourning, hated. For yours is the kingdom of God, signed Jesus of Nazareth. See, what Jesus seems to be saying is that you're not blessed despite your pain, that you're blessed in your pain. That what Jesus is teaching is that under the rubble of your life is blessing. That you're not blessed despite your pain. That you are blessed in your pain. Let me give you a real world example from my own life. About six years ago or so, a sexual assault happened in my neighborhood. It was awful. And what made it particularly awful is that we knew both the victims and the accused. They were all neighbors that lived within a stone throw of our house. And because of the, some of the circumstances around our family, it actually threw our family into a space that I wouldn't wish on anyone. That we had to have conversation with my young children that ultimately stole the innocence of childhood, making sure that they were okay, that nothing had happened to them. And while thankfully nothing had happened to them, that it spun us into a season of deep struggle and deep pain. For the next two years, there was, there was deep mourning in our lives because we realized, we realized that we could never return our kids' innocence, that there was mourning because we, there was nothing that we could do to bring back the innocence of our kids. We also realized as parents, the, the worst fear in the world, that, that you can't actually protect your kids. And there was deep mourning over, over that in those moments. 
There was deep mourning in the realization that, that deep evil was in our neighborhood just across the street. And for two years, we mourned in that, and we didn't know what to do. And so we did the only thing that, that we could think of. We just went to God day after day, month after month. We just continued to go to God. And what began to happen in those moments is that we began not only to realize that there was a deeper dependence from us in those moments on God, but we also began to realize the faithfulness of God and that God is truly with us, that no matter what happens in this world, that God is with us. And while we were never able to return the innocence of our kids' childhood, and while we were never able to regain control that, that we can keep all evils away from our kids, that we can protect our kids, and while we could not undo the evil that happened in our neighborhood, what happened over a couple of years is that the fear subsided, and ultimately what was replaced was radical peace. Radical peace. See, when the poor people came to Jesus, they still left poor. But what they had was an experience with Jesus, that they knew Jesus. And they knew that God was with them and that they were blessed. And what happened was radical peace. When the hungry came to Jesus, they left, they were still hungry. But they had an experience with Jesus that changed their life, that they knew that God was with them. And something radical happened. They had peace. And so it happened with the mourning. And so it happened with the hated. And so if your story is littered with brokenness, Makarios, embrace the suffering. Because in the rubble of your life is blessing. Jesus says, come into my kingdom. Blessings today, hope tomorrow. That's our peace. That's where we live. In our community groups this week, the first question that, that's going to be asked is to describe a time when you experience significant spiritual or personal growth by making it through a difficult trial. See, the reality is, is that this is the story of all of our lives. There's not a single person who has their life together. At some reality or another, we're all hot messes, aren't we? We're all hot messes. And Jesus looks at us and says, you don't have to have your whole life together to come to know me. Makarios, you just show up. You just show up. And it's in community where we begin to live out what Jesus says. It's where we bring our hot messes and realize that, that this is actually normal. And where this cliche that we're all in it together actually has something significant, actually has something meaningful, that we realize that there's actually deep purpose. See, at Crossroads Church, we believe that growth happens not just in rows, but actually better in circles when we're doing life together. And so for the next eight weeks, I just want to invite you. I want to invite you to get into a community group and to experience the life of Jesus and to live out the blessing that is yours. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you, and God, I'm grateful for your words. I'm grateful for your teaching. And Lord, I pray for those God, I pray for those first who are, Lord, living a life that is good right now. Lord, they have money in their pocket. They're satisfied. Lord, there's joy. Lord, people think well of them. Lord, I pray that, that their attitude would not be one of, of look at me. Look at how great I am. Look at all the things that I've done. Lord, I pray that, that you would convict those hearts right now. 
Lord, that they would turn to you and they would fall on their knees and give you the honor and the thanksgiving that you deserve as the giver of those good gifts. And Father, I pray for those who are, who are a bit of a mess right now. Lord, those who are poor, living on the outskirts of society, not fitting in. Lord, those who are oppressed. Lord, those who are broken, those who are hot messes, those who are hungry. God, I pray that those, Lord, would know that they don't have to have their whole lives together in order to come to you. That they can just come to you and know, Lord, that they are blessed. So, Lord, that's where our hope is at. That's where our peace is found. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.